All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Given America's position on the world stage, is it appropriate for us to start to pull back within our own borders, especially with respect to trade? Is it time for the United States to become more independent with respect to the goods, the services, the products, the raw materials, and all the things that we need to have a thriving economy? We're going to take a look at that question today on Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, so let's start with a personal story. Um, I was talking with a, a friend of mine once, a colleague in the General Assembly, and we were talking about the issue of trade, and specifically free trade. And we were generally discussing the overall benefits of being able to freely exchange products and services with other people and across borders and why that was a good thing. And another colleague of mine, who's a very good friend, came in and said, well, tell that to the workers in my district because a lot of the industry that had previously been conducted within a particular part of Virginia was now increasingly moving overseas. And there was certainly no doubt that that was taking place. But the real question was, is what do you do about it? What should U.S. trade policy look like in order to put the United States in the best economic position going forward? And in order to do that, we're going to cover several topics today. But the first one that we're going to hit on is what exactly is trade. Because a lot of times from a political aspect, and we just shot a Why Minute episode, and if you haven't checked out the Why Minutes, I encourage you to do that. But check out that episode where we talked about this whole concept of trade and trade deficit and trade wars. And what we're doing today is we're going to go a little bit deeper into some of the points that we hit on that Why Minute. But essentially, trade is just the exchange of goods and services. In fact, if you want a very specific definition of it, the first thing that comes up is the action of buying and selling goods and services. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about trade and exchange. So obviously, any time that voluntary trade takes place, which is to say that you and I engage, maybe it's a cup of coffee, maybe it's an apple, maybe it's a house, a car, whatever it is. But as long as we both voluntarily went into the exchange, then theoretically, and I think most people would argue from experience, both sides are better off as a result of the trade, right? So the first thing to understand about trade is that it's not this zero-sum game where I pay someone from a car and they're better off than I am because they've got my money and I've got the car, or I'm better off than they are because I've got the car and all they've got is Federal Reserve notes, right? It's the idea that both of us wanted something one of us wanted one item more than what we had. The other person wanted what we had more than what they had. And so when that exchange takes place, 
both of us are actually wealthier or better off as a result of the transaction. So it's not a win or lose kind of, uh, kind of dynamic, right? We're, we're both better off for the exchange. Right? And so what this really does is it, it begs the question that we're going to keep going through through the rest of the podcast is this idea of do we want more trade and more exchange or do we want less trade or fewer options within the environment for which we can engage in exchange? Now, some people, and it's on both sides of the aisle, have argued that we need more protectionism within our trade policy. And so when we think about protectionism, here's what I want you to think about, right? And we'll look at the, the definition here. It's the theory or practice of shielding a country's domestic industry from foreign competition by taxing imports. Right now, I would argue that's one of the ways that you can engage in protectionism, but there's actually some more ways. But the first one they talk about is the idea of taxing trade or what they call tariffs, which is essentially a tax on any sort of foreign product uh, being sold within the United States. Another form of protectionism has to do with trade restrictions. That's where you can actually make it illegal to trade or to engage in transactions with products originating from a particular country. Okay, another way that you can engage in protectionism is what's called subsidization. So that's where essentially the government taxes you and then gives it to an industry so that it can produce products and services at a rate that is competitive on the world market. All right, so you know, we'll get into things like sugar tariffs and stuff like that. But think of it that way. There's essentially three primary ways that a country can engage in protectionism. They can either tax the consumer, they can actually levy a tax that the consumer has to pay to buy a foreign product, right? That's one way. Another way is they can engage in trade restrictions, which is to ban American consumers from being able to buy products from certain countries, right? And then the third component is, is that they can tax American citizens, give it to a particular company in order to attempt to bring down their overall uh, cost associated with producing a product in order to make it more competitive with market rates or world rates for a particular good or service. So those are kind of the three ways that we can engage in protectionism. And it's important to understand that just like we said that first one, right? A tariff is a tax, right? And who pays it? You do. You as the American consumer pay that tax in order to buy that foreign product. And this is going to be important to think about as we move on to some of these other questions. So the first question was, is does it help, right? Does protectionism help the American consumer, right? Are you better off when your country engages in protectionist trade policy? Well, again, going back to those three versions of protectionism, the first one we talked about was a tariff. So now I walk into the store, I wanna buy a hammer, right? Now, ideally, I would want as many options to buy a hammer as I could possibly get, right? Because I, I'm, as a consumer, I'm looking at a couple different things. One is the overall cost and one is the quality. Right? And what I'm doing is the more options I have, the more I can get the best value for my dollar. And value is generally associated with, I got the best possible product for the best possible price. And typically speaking, the more options I have, the better off I am. So let's say I walk in there and I've got 10 hammers to choose from. And let's say that one hammer is made right here in the United States, another hammer is made in Argentina, another hammer is made in Denmark. Well, what a tariff might do is it'll say that even if, let's say the, the, the hammer made in Argentina was of roughly the same quality, all right, but it was actually about a dollar cheaper. And so what the tariff does is that in order for the hammer to be sold in the United States, the government placed a tax on it. So now the hammer's being sold for the same price that, as the American hammer. 
Okay, now I as the American consumer, am I better off as a result of this transaction? No, I'm not, because now I'm having to pay more for something than I would have otherwise had to if the U.S. government had not imposed a tariff on that foreign product, okay? So what's the second degree of protectionism, right? Restrictions on trade. Let's say the U.S. government says, you know what, forget tariffs, we're just going to tell you you can't buy anything from Argentina. Okay, well now I walk into the store and where there were three hammers, now there's two, right? And okay, again, am I better off as a result of this trade restriction? No, I'm not. Not as a consumer. Okay, that's important. That's what we're talking about right now. As an American consumer, am I better off? The answer is no. All right. The third idea is, what if I subsidize the American hammer? So I don't put a tariff on you. I let you buy the hammer from Argentina, and the hammer from Argentina is $9. Right? It's $9. The American hammer would be $10, but now I've subsidized the American industry, and so they were able to bring their hammer down to $9 as well, so now they're competitive. Am I better off as a consumer? Once again, no, because just like a tariff taxes me if I buy the hammer from a foreign provider, right? my government now just taxed me up front and gave it to that company. So the real price of that hammer to me is not just what I pay for it at the store, it's also what I pay in taxes to be able to get that hammer in the first place. right? So in all three categories of protectionist policy, the American consumer is not better off as a result. The American consumer either has fewer choices or they are paying more than they otherwise would within a free market, all right? So I think the answer to the first question, is it better for the American consumer? I think we'd have to conclude that no, it is not. But look, the American consumer is not the only person involved in this, right? Let's, look at also, let's also look at this question. Does protectionism help American industry? Right, so maybe you're thinking, you know, as a consumer, maybe I should have to pay a little bit more if it means that it's better for American businesses, right? Maybe, and, and that has some level of superficial plausibility toward it, right? It, it seems to make sense that if a company is either, um, you know, has a tariff, so, you know, the, the price that they sell things for is the same rate at what, they're, at what a foreign competitor is selling for. That seems like it would be better for American industry, right? If the American government comes in and just completely restricts trade with another country, that seems like it would be better for me and my business, right? And then obviously, if the government's just going to tax you and give me money, well, shoot, maybe that's better for American business. So what has the track record been with respect to American industry? Well, I'm going to give you a couple examples here of why, even though superficially it seems like protectionist trade policy should help American industry, then in the long run, it actually doesn't, all right? So let's give a couple examples. First one I would talk about is called the Jones Act, all right? The Jones Act is actually an example of how protectionism hurts an American industry. So in 1921, there were 1,757 merchant ships registered in the United States. And that represented about 10% of the entire world shipping tonnage. So one country, the United States, had about 10%, right? And this is the 1920s, right? There's a lot more uh, competition within certain countries with respect to shipping at this particular time. So what do we got today? Because we passed the Jones Act, and what the Jones Act essentially said was that if you are going to transport goods from one American port to another American port, it has to be an American manufactured and operated ship. Right, so once upon a time, you could just, whatever ship came into port, you, you could go, you get the goods. The goods could be offloaded, you could, you could travel, not a problem. But when they passed the Jones Act, which was ostensibly to protect American shipping, what they said was, you have to be an American ship if you're going from U.S. port to U.S. port. So, 
Going back, 1921, we had over 1,700 merchant ships. We passed the Jones Act in order to help American shipping industry. What do we have now? Well, today there's only 182 registered merchant ships in the country, accounting for 0.4% of the entire world's shipping tonnage. So we went from the 10% all the way down to 0.4. Now you might say that maybe other countries got more involved in the shipping industry. Sure, and there, there was probably multiple factors that affected our overall percentage, but that's a pretty significant drop in a hundred years, especially when the United States went from we, we weren't necessarily the wealthiest economy in 1921. We were certainly we were certainly up there, but the advantage that we had economically over other countries was not as significant as it is today. Not to mention the fact that we engage in far more international trade today than we did then. So why in the world would U.S. international shipping? Why would our merchant fleet be significantly smaller than it once was? Well, turns out the Jones Act had some negative consequences. Let's go over that. Um, because there was no competition in U.S. markets, U.S. companies no longer felt the need to keep up with respect to their technology, with respect to their efficiency, with respect to their maintenance, because after all, they now had protection. Right? They no longer had to compete when they were going from U.S. port to U.S. port. Now, if they're going to international ports, they did have to compete. Right, That was, that was very different. But what you did was you created this, this false little bubble that told the American shipping industry that it made sense to pour all of your resources just into shipping that was going U.S. port to U.S. port. And what it did was international shipping that didn't have the same restrictions, they were able, they still had to be competitive in order to compete within with, uh, within the global market. And so you actually had a negative consequence on American industry in the long term because when you protect a company from competition, it's important to understand something. You don't protect them forever. You just protect them within a small little bubble. And over time, when a company doesn't have sufficient competition, the result usually is, is that they produce a, an inferior product. That competition helps drive companies to constantly look for ways to create efficiencies and innovations and to use their creativity in order to compete. But when you take that away, you, you inevitably create an environment where companies are usually not as effective at producing the products and services that we want over the long term. Okay, so this was, this was a classic example. Let me give you another one. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff. So after the stock market crashed in 1929, right? You had Black Tuesday. And most people, when we learn about the Great Depression, we learn about the stock market crash. And then we automatically assume that that led into the Great Depression. But that's actually not how the chain of events worked. So you had the stock market crash. And before the government got really involved in quote-unquote helping the economy actually started to recover. So obviously you had a lot of bad investment, you had a lot of what they call malinvestment, and the result was is that different people had to declare bankruptcy, other investors came on, were able to buy up those properties, they were able to reorganize, and they were able to more efficiently run them. And so while your unemployment rate shot up when the stock market first crashed, within that year, the unemployment rate had actually gone back down. It was hovering somewhere around 7%. So the economy was starting to recover. Well, what happened? Well, Herbert Hoover, who was a Republican, by the way, decided he was going to engage in two different types of government policy that were 
pretty significant departures from what we've done in the past. The one is, is you started to get the federal government far more involved in attempting to micromanage the economy. But the other thing that he did was they passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Now, tariffs have been around in the United States from the beginning of the country, but this was a drastic increase across the board with respect to various trading partners that the United States had. So we had an economic coll uh, collapse, uh, with the stock market, the economy started to recover, but Herbert Hoover decided that the way we're going to benefit American industry and American labor is that we're going to raise these tariffs and that's going to help American industry compete on the world market. Well, what happened? Well, this not only was the stock market punished, but U.S. industry was punished because every other country engaged in what we call retaliatory tariffs, which is to say that if you're going to tax our goods coming into your country, then we're going to tax your goods coming into our country. And what happened? American industry suffered because a lot of industries were based off of exports. They exported the goods and service they had here in the United States, primarily the goods, to other countries. And now that it was far more expensive to buy American goods in those foreign countries, they essentially went out of business. So you saw the, um, you actually saw the unemployment rate skyrocket yet again after the Smoot-Hawley tariff. And then what you saw between the Herbert Hoover and the FDR administrations was not only maintaining those high taxes on exports or on imports, but what you also was massive government intervention in the economy, and that's where you see huge unemployment in double digits, and it's staying in double digits for over a decade. So again, it's important to understand that you can't just blame a, a temporary drop in the stock market. That's happened in U.S. history before. It didn't become a great depression until we had massive government intervention into the economy, including our trade policy, where we drastically increased our protectionist trade policy, ostensibly to help American industry. Right, but that's not what happened. American industry suffered. And here's an important thing to remember. American industry is not just producers of things, they are also consumers of things. So for instance, and if an American company is producing vehicles or an American company is producing television sets or, or they're producing microchips or whatever it is, they still get other materials from different places. So if you're producing, let's say you're uh, an architect or you're a contractor and you're, you're building a building, and right now you get your steel from a foreign country, but the U.S. government comes in and increases your steel tariffs. Well, that might be temporarily good for the steel industry, but it's really bad for the American company that is trying to produce buildings or trying to produce other things which consume steel, and now they have to pay a significantly higher rate from steel than they otherwise would have. And now it's gonna cause them to either look for alternative building materials, or they're just gonna to have to pass on the cost of doing business to, other, to, uh, to their consumers. So even if a particular tariff might temporarily help one industry, it always does so inevitably at the expense of other American industries, right? So two things that protectionism inevitably does to our own industry, which is detrimental, is that one, it creates this artificial environment where they feel like they no longer have to uh, compete at the same level, find the same uh, efficiencies, create the same innovations in order to be competitive in a world market. And two, the benefit to one particular industry might be a detriment to another industry if they're now arbitrarily forced to, high, to pay higher rates for the materials they need to produce something in the United States, right? So those are two ways that protectionist trade policy hurts American industry. Let's go ahead and look at another example here. 
So we've, we've talked about how protectionism hurts the American consumer. We've talked about how it hurts American businesses. What about American workers, right? Because that is a very common refrain that we hear, that jobs are being shipped overseas and we've got to stop that. And the way that they're, they're going to stop that is by engaging in protectionism. So here's the question. Maybe we concede it doesn't help American consumers. Maybe we concede it doesn't help American industry. But does it help American labor? Is, is American labor better off with these trade protections? Well, again, let's look at this from a couple different perspectives. First of all, when you think about an American laborer, right? Someone that is going off to a manufacturing plant in order to create something or they're doing a particular job. Um, and now that job's been shipped overseas. You can certainly look at that particular instance and say, well, they're not better off by their job being shipped overseas. By the same token, if you say that we're going to engage in protectionism in order to help them keep their job, then inevitably what happens is two things. One, remember, every laborer is also a consumer. So you're now forcing them to pay higher prices in order to get the things that they need. So even in the way that you think you might have helped them, you've hurt them in another respect. right? And you've got to ask yourself, is that really the only way that we could you know, help American labor? The other thing to keep in mind is this. If a particular industry is not competitive anymore on the world market, does it make sense to create artificial incentives for laborers to go into that industry? Right? So for, think of it this way. At the turn of the century, motor vehicles were becoming more and more prominent. Right? More and more people were able to own a vehicle once we got into the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, to the point where today, pretty much almost everybody has a vehicle or can afford a vehicle of some kind. Right? Now, I want you to imagine that we had put in special protections to help the horse and buggy industry. Right? Because before the motor vehicle came along, horse and buggy industry, that was a huge industry in the United States, right? And it wasn't just farriers. It wasn't just people taking care of uh, horses. It was people manufacturing buggies. It was people that knew how to drive those buggies. It was the people that would clean up the streets from all of the horse defecation all throughout our cities. There was all kinds of industries, not just associated with actually riding a horse or, or driving a horse and buggy, but all the different supporting industries that helped it. So what if the government had come in and said, well, this is horrible. We don't want all these people to be out of work. So we're going to put in all these protections or restrictions against the automobile in order to help that industry. Now, we all know when we think about that, that none of us as consumers would be better off. Certainly the companies that were creating vehicles wouldn't be better off. But would the horse and buggy people be better off? Well, again, maybe temporarily, but in the long term, they're not because that same horse and buggy person probably wants a car at some point. Not to mention the fact that new jobs were being created within this industry, within this disruptive industry of motor vehicles that was able to absorb the labor that was lost from horse and buggy. Right? And similar things happen with international trade. For instance, if you have a country which can afford to produce a particular thing, like maybe like shoes or clothing, and they can produce that far cheaper than we can in the United States, does it make sense to force American consumers to pay more in order to help the American textile market? Or would it make more sense to tell American workers or to allow American workers to realize that, look, this particular industry is no longer competitive within the United States. However, this frees up labor to go into other areas that we are competitive on. 
And so it drives us to do better, to be more effective, and ultimately, in a high-tech economy like we possess in the United States, with a pretty robust education and transportation system, we're in a much better position to take advantage of those future opportunities or those current opportunities that are developing than countries that don't have that same education or technological infrastructure. But if the United States government comes in and says, out of compassion, we're going to raise tariffs on this particular product in order to help these laborers, you really haven't helped them. Maybe in the short term, but in the long term, you've done two things which is very perverse. One, you've stranded people in a job or in an occupation that is no longer competitive within the United States. And two, you have told future generations or people coming into the labor market that this is still a viable industry in the U.S. when it isn't. And so you're not only hurting the people that are currently in that industry, but you're setting up future generations for failure, right? So ultimately, when we ask the question, does American protectionism, you know, in the long run, does it help U.S. labor, and I would have to conclude that it does not. So, this all begs the question, right? If, if, if the reasons that a patriotic person would support protectionist trade policy is that it would help the, consumer, the American consumer, the American business, or the American laborer, and we can, we can demonstrate pretty clearly with facts, evidence, logic, and history how those things did not transpire when we engage in protectionist trade policy, well then the question is, is why do people still advocate for protectionist trade policy? And the answer to that is kind of twofold. One answer is that for somebody that is not, doesn't have a lot of time to analyze American trade policy or economics in general, it seems plausible that you would engage in protectionism to help Americans. But once you see the facts and the evidence, most of those people will come around to the conclusion that, yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we still have people lobbying for this, then who does it make sense for, right? If it doesn't make sense for the consumer overall, if it doesn't make sense for industry overall, if it doesn't make sense for labor overall, why would anybody advocate for this? And the answer to that generally comes with a concept known as concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. So there is a reason that the sugar lobby, the sugar industry in the United States, spends a lot of money lobbying the United States government to keep tariffs in place against foreign sugar. And that's because for them, that's, that tariff might represent tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue by keeping that tariff in place. So they have a huge incentive to continue to lobby the government to keep that in place, even though it's hurting other American industry and even though it's hurting American consumers, right? But you as the consumer, when you go to the store and you pay for your sugar, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's two cents more than you would have to pay if it was on the, the world market. But now you need to start adding up. It's not just two cents more every time you buy sugar. It's two cents more every time you buy sugar or anything else that is also using sugar. So over the course of a year, maybe you're spending, you know, 50, 100, 150, $200, depending on what your budget looks like, more than you should have to, to buy products that is either sugar directly or, or have sugar in it. Now, do you even notice this on your annual budget? Probably not. And even if you did, and even if you were upset about it, are you going to rally all of your friends to go to Washington, D.C. And, and demand that the government get rid of the sugar tariff? Probably not. You might get upset about it. You might do a post on Facebook about it. 
You might try to change your spending habits, but ultimately you're probably not going to spend a lot of time lobbying the government in order to fight against these sugar tariffs. But the, but the uh, industry which is benefiting from it or the companies that are benefiting from it, they're going to spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in order to keep that in place. And that's the idea of concentrated benefit, dispersed costs. They are receiving a benefit by denying you access to products on the marketplace you would otherwise want. And they're not doing that by, you know, trying to convince you to buy American sugar. No, they're getting politicians to force you to pay more for American sugar. And I think there's something deeply unpatriotic about that. But again, their claim is, as well, this, you know, the sugar industry, this is an American industry. We employ this many people. You know, this is good for our economy. No, it's good for them. And that's one of the biggest problems with protectionism in general is that the people that are benefiting it is not the American consumer in general, not the laborer in general, not the in, not uh, American industry in general. It's very specific people with very well-paid lobbyists convincing the government to use force and coercion to deny you options. And I find that, again, not only is that you know, not patriotic, I would argue that that's unpatriotic. But let's go into our, our final point here. And that has to do with exceptions to the rule. So I, I've tried to lay out a, a reasonable argument, you know, a, a logically consistent argument on why expanding free trade is beneficial to Americans. Now, there will be a lot of people that come in and say, well, what about China? What about Iran? What about certain uh, goods or services which are so critical to our economy that we don't want to be completely dependent on foreign sources for them? All right. And that's where I want to talk about exceptions to the rule. So, for instance, China regularly engages in corporate espionage, patent infringement with respect to U.S. companies, right? They steal U.S. companies' ideas, they steal patents, they steal trade secrets in order to try to be more competitive. That's theft. And can you reach a situation where a foreign government is actively engaging or foreign companies are actively engaging in such a, a you know, um, disreputable practices, that it makes sense to put some sort of sanctions on them. Yes, I, I think that there are times when that's appropriate. You have countries like Iran, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, state sponsor of terrorism in the world. Does it make sense to potentially put trade restrictions on them for that purpose? Yes, it could. The question that you have to ask yourself is, what are the economic costs and benefits? Because I want to make one thing very, very clear. When you put trade restrictions on a foreign country, you are not doing that because it will make your country wealthier. Let me say that again. When you put restrictions on a foreign country, you are not doing that to make your country wealthier. So the question is, is why would you do it? Well, there can be certain cases, like I described with China or with Iran, where you have a government that is engaging in certain practices which are not only deliberately anti-free trade, but are actually illegal and immoral. But the way I like to equate it is this. If you have an allergic reaction to something, you might take medicine for that allergic reaction. If you hurt yourself and you have an infection, you might take antibiotics for that particular infection. But you would not take antihistamines on a regular basis because it makes you healthy. You would not take antibiotics on a regular basis because it makes you healthy. 
you would take these things because it's actually combating something that is harming you or negatively affecting you. But once you get rid of that negative effect, you stop taking it. So theoretically, you could make an argument that if you engage in some sort of retaliatory trade policy, which punishes a foreign country, and it gets them to a point where they stop doing the thing that you want them to stop doing, like engaging in theft, sponsoring terrorism, or if you get to a position where they have tariffs or trade restrictions against your products, and the retaliatory tariff or the threat of the tariff is enough to make them lower their tariffs and open up their market more to U.S. goods, you can make an argument, a very limited argument, for why some of those trade practices might make sense in a very limited capacity. But understand something. At the same time that you put those restrictions on the foreign country, you are inevitably, in different ways, hurting your own economy at the same time. The goal is, is you're hurting their economy worse than you're hurting your own in order to get them to change their practices with the end state of engaging in more free trade, right? More exchange of goods and services between the two countries, not less. So while there may be limited use cases for these sort of policies, these sort of tariffs or restrictions or sanctions, understand you're not doing it to make your country wealthier, you're doing it in order to change the behavior of the country for which it is directed. And I think that is a very, very important distinction. Now I want to cover one other thing, and then we're going to wrap this all up. And this part's important because I get a lot of people, and I know this will come up in the comments section. People will say, well, but Nick, it's not fair when a U.S. company is working hard and producing a good product, and then a foreign company restricts that product from being sold in their country. So now our U.S. company has put it at a competitive disadvantage, and so we should restrict whatever that foreign product is to come into this country. A couple of things with this. One, you need to understand that it's very difficult to reach that kind of equilibrium just through trade policy alone. Secondly, the other thing that you need to understand is when that country restricts a U.S. product from being sold in their borders, they're actually hurting their own people. Right? They are hurting their own people in order to try to prop up one of their own companies. So they're actually doing damage to themselves, not just to the American company. The other thing to keep in mind is this. Some companies are still competitive even when there's trade restrictions that other companies put on our companies. They're still competitive and they should continue to operate. If you find an environment where, where a company is no longer as competitive, before you engage in a retaliatory tariff, the thing that you should ask yourself is, should American industry be focused in a different sector? Or should it be focused on a different product or service that is more competitive on the world stage? Because the goal of a strong economy is to always stay at the cutting edge. We, we don't want to be, the, the idea of protecting an industry in the United States that can be done better somewhere else is, is a little bit ridiculous especially when the reason why that industry is competitive somewhere else is because all it requires is low-skilled labor, right? We, we want to continue to prop up American labor in the way that we, we have, again, a robust education system. We stay on the cutting edge of technology. We stay on the cutting, and the way you do that is through free market economics, not through protectionism. So that's the first point. The other point that I hear a lot is, well, Nick, it's not fair to American companies because foreign governments will subsidize foreign industry. So for instance, China might say, all right, we're going to pour a bunch of tax dollars into this particular company in order to make them competitive with the United States. I want to do two things for you real quick to explain why that is a horrible strategy on their part. One, think about what they're doing. 
They're actually making their own people poorer in order to make American consumers wealthier. And I'm going to tell you right now, if a foreign government wants to take money out of their own people's hands, if they want to reduce the purchasing power of their own people in order to be able to sell cheaper products in the United States, in order to make us wealthier, because again, wealth is not defined by how many you know, pictures of dead presidents you have on pieces of paper. Wealth is defined by the overall ability to get the things that make our lives better, right? It's not so much the dollar bills as it is the house you buy with it or the car you buy with it or the groceries you buy with it. So if a foreign government wants to tell their own citizens, we're going to make you poorer so we can make American citizens wealthier, I say we take that bet. Now, some people will claim that, well, what they're actually doing is they're trying to drive American industry out of the marketplace, and then as soon as they've done that, they'll raise their prices. Here's the problem. That sounds superficially plausible. It's actually incredibly difficult to pull off within the global marketplace, actually within any marketplace. One of the reasons why we have antitrust laws in the United States is because there was this concern that big companies would move in, drive out smaller companies, and when their competition was gone, they could just raise their prices to whatever they want. It turns out that doesn't really happen. Even when companies have tried to do it, what immediately happens is as soon as they raise their prices to a certain amount, other people come in and start to compete with them. And so they have to lower their prices again. This is why even some of the biggest companies in American history, like Standard Oil, which had a near monopoly on the sale of kerosene in the United States. It controlled like 90% of market share at its height. It didn't raise prices. In fact, Standard Oil was almost uniquely responsible for taking the price of kerosene down you know, by multiple percentage points over, over years. The reason why they got such a huge part of the market share was because they dropped prices, not because they raised them. And even when they had 90% of market share, they were still lowering prices in order to be competitive. So it's important to understand that when a foreign government uses the tax dollars from their citizens to prop up industries in order to sell us cheaper um, exports, they're making us wealthier at the expense of their own businesses not to, or expense of their own people, not to mention the fact that companies start to become addicted to the government subsidy and instead of finding new efficiencies in order to be more effective, they get lazy. And if you want examples of this, you can actually look at how Standard Oil competed with Russian companies who had far more oil resources available to them at the time that they were competing. Far cheaper, it was far cheaper for the Russian companies to be able to get their oil, refine it, and get it to market. And yet Standard Oil was still beating them on the world stage because they had to be more effective and more creative and more innovative than the Russian company did. So it's important to understand those two factors. I just wanted to get that out because I'm almost anticipating that's going to show up within the comments section. All right, let's wrap all this up. What is trade? It's nothing more than the exchange of goods and services between people, whether that's between you and your neighbor, whether that's between your business and a business in another state, or whether that's between you going to the store and buying a product that was made in Bangladesh, right? That's trade. The more voluntary transactions you have in an economy, the better off you are. What is protectionism? Protectionism generally falls into three categories. They're either going to tax foreign goods through tariffs, they're actually going to restrict trade through sanctions and not allow you to buy through a foreign country, or they're going to tax you and then give it to American companies in order to make them more competitive on the world market. And in each one of those things, that is kind of like the broader umbrella of what is protectionism. So does protectionism help consumers? No, because how could it possibly help you to have to spend more money than you would have otherwise spent on products? If I got to spend a dollar more for that hammer, that's a dollar less I have to spend on other products that would have made my life better. Does it help American industry? No, because ultimately American industry 
uses foreign products in order to create the things that we manufacture here in the United States. So if you raise the steel tariff, yeah, it might temporarily help that steel company, but in the end, you're gonna hurt them because they no longer feel the need to be as competitive, not to mention the fact that every other American business that uses steel is now worse off because they have to pay higher rates in order to get that steel than they normally would have, and they're gonna pass that right along to who? The consumer. So no, protectionism is not better for American industry as a whole. Finally, is American industry better for labor? Once again, no. We saw this not only with the Smoot-Hawley tariff, because a lot of times when a country engages in protectionist trade practices, other countries retaliate. And now there are fewer jobs available for Americans that were building the very things that we were producing to export to foreign markets. So it's not good for the laborer either. And it's also not good for the laborer because if you're engaging in a protectionist policy, which is encourages Americans to go into a labor field that is no longer relevant within the American marketplace, you have essentially lied to them and created perverse incentives, which is going to hurt them in the long run. Finally, or not quite finally, fourth point, who benefits from protectionism? Typically, it is very, very um, unique special interests that are benefiting by you having to pay more. And you're paying more not because they produced a better product. You're paying more because they're using the government to restrict your options. And not only is that not, you know, patriotic, it is, in my opinion, deliberately unpatriotic. And then finally, are there exceptions to the rule? Yes. If you have a country that is engaging in certain practices whether it be a country like Iran, which is sponsoring terrorism, or a country like China, which is deliberately engaging in illegal practices, can it make sense to respond with changes to your own trade policy that could potentially hurt those countries? Yes, you can do that, provided that you remember that hurting those countries with respect to trade does not make your country wealthier. It is a temporary solution in order to get a country to stop doing what you want them to stop doing it is not a solution or a remedy to make your own country wealthier. All right. Well, I hope that you found this informative. Um, and I would say that my overall conclusion, if I hadn't made it obvious already, is that the freer the trade, the more transactions that Americans, in, uh, that American consumers, American businesses, and American labor can engage in, the better and wealthier we are. And so, in my opinion, the patriotic thing to do is to make sure that we continue to foster a free and robust marketplace so that Americans can continue to be on the cutting edge of industry and set the pace for the rest of the world. Every other alternative to that solution will only result in making us poorer. So once again, thank you for watching Making the Argument. Leave us your comments, like, subscribe, hit the notification button. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star review and leave us your comments. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.